is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. On this episode, we hear from Jim Potts about his XK140 home restoration, Richard West announces his new motorsport project, and Tom Robinson prepares for the Donington round of the JC Racing Championship this weekend. JECpodcast.com Hi, you welcome to the 25th Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Wayne Scott here with you for another week. Hope you're well. As autumn arrives and already we look forward to next year and the Summer Jaguar Festival at Blenheim Palace. Weekend packages, just a reminder, are selling fast. So don't forget yours. Book now at jc.org.uk forward slash festival. And you'll find all the information you need there. 60 years of the Jaguar Mark 10 Saloon. 20 years of the Jaguar X-Type. 70 years since Jaguar's first win at Le Mans. And of course, the 60th anniversary of one of the most iconic British cars ever built, the Jaguar E-Type. Come and celebrate them all with us at Blenheim Palace, 14th to the 16th of May. Find all the details online at jc.org.uk forward slash festival. This week, sad news that the NEC Classic Motor Show was announced as cancelled for 2020. The event is the largest indoor show in the UK and is traditionally the season closer for the classic car world, attracting over 80,000 visitors each year. This year, it's yet another victim to the continued difficulties brought about by the COVID-19 pandemic. And our thoughts as the JEC are with all the organisers. We really can sympathise with how they're feeling right now after putting in all the hard work to make that event happen. It's also the traditional event where the winner of the JEC raffle car is revealed each year. This year we've postponed that, of course, until the Summer Jaguar Festival next May. But the fact that we have a little more time to reach our ambitious fundraising targets doesn't mean that we're not in need of your support. Buy your tickets for the raffle car now via jc.org.uk forward slash raffle to be in with a chance of winning our superb 5-litre V8 Jaguar XK for just £2. And to tell us more about what your money will help our nominated charity, the Haemophilia Society, to achieve, it's time to meet another of our Haemophilia Society ambassadors. My name's Scott. Uh, I'm 28 years old. I've got severe haemophilia A and I currently live in uh, Buckinghamshire, Milton Keynes. I work in a bookies. Not glorious, <laughs> but that's day-to-day life. Pays the bills. Uh, Scott, so tell us about your story then. How were you diagnosed? How did it affect you growing up? Um, so I was diagnosed at eight months old. Again, haemophilia means that my uh, body doesn't create the protein uh, needed to make my blood clot. Uh, my mum knew that haemophilia ran in our family, so she had a little bit of an idea. And it was when, you know, as a baby crawling around, I was knocking off things and bumping into things. Uh, I'd go to bed with a bruise the size of a pea, and the next morning it would be the size of a fist. So suspicions then grew. I went and got tested and got confirmed that I had haemophilia. Um, so from that point, this was kind of before prophylactic treatment. So I was having intravenous injections as and when I hurt myself, as opposed to prevent me from, from hurting myself. So I would knock my arm and take a bleed and have to go all the way to our treatment center to then be treated. 
Uh, it wasn't until I was about eight or nine years old that I started uh, on the prophylactic intravenous treatment that the majority of haemophiliacs in the UK are now on, um, where I was treating daily into a vein, which I've done for the last 20 years now. So I've got the, the track marks to show for it as well. It must be a tremendous strain on you as a child having to deal with that every day. Did you feel like it was something that you struggled with day to day at times? For me, I, I, I struggled a great deal with it um, mentally, I suppose. When I hit my teenage years and decided to be a bit more rebellious, um, I, I'd go out with my friends and they weren't having to do injections before they went out. Um, so I struggled with the fact that I had to do one. Uh, I was on the sidelines at school during PE for any kind of sporting event. So uh, it really took its toll on me. I felt incredibly isolated growing up because I had to do this thing that no one else had to. And when I decided not to do it, I only ended up worse off because I was taking injuries and taking bleeds and taking more time out because I wasn't doing the thing that I was supposed to do that was making me feel different. <laughs> so it was a vicious cycle, <laughs> to, to be honest. So obviously at some point you then discovered the society and became part of this wonderful community that I'm talking to you as part of now. Tell us about how you firstly found out about the society and then how this community built around you and, and how it's helped you. Um, I, I first got involved with the society, I'd say about two and a half, three years ago. And uh, I found them through the wonders of social media. Um, and it was literally, I'd seen a post about someone talking about their haemophilia. And for the first time really in my life, I was like, oh, that's someone who gets it. Mm -hmm. um, so I immediately started conversing and getting in touch with the society and going to events that they were hosting um, before eventually becoming part of the, the team as such as an ambassador. Um, so just, just to the fact that they were able to give me a space where I felt some kind of normality and belonging because people, all the people I was speaking to had haemophilia or various bleeding disorders. So we all had sort of different cases, but we're all in the same boat and the society knew how to help us with that and give advice and allow me to share my experience with other people as well to help them along. Um, it's just been amazing. So like, it's one of the best things that's happened to me as a haemophiliac is getting involved with the society. Tell us about a moment in your life where, you know, having a bit more awareness out there in, what, in the world would have really helped. Ironically, the, the place I would have expected the most awareness, uh, about two and a half years ago, um, I, I was living up north in Manchester, but I was, uh, I was working in field sales. So I was actually down in Milton Keynes for a day. And I, I took a very, very bad bleed and didn't have any treatment with me. Um, so I ended up in A&E. And no one in A&E knew how to treat my haemophilia. I knew it was a simple case of having my treatment, allowing that to work, and I would have been okay to, to go back. But it took them 16 hours in total to get my treatment to me, where it could have been dealt with in two or three maximum. So that, that was a, a massive eye-opener in terms of why we need to kind of spread the message so people understand this condition and so I can feel 
more comfortable in those situations. Who have you met and what are the sort of good memories that you have from being involved with the charity over the last couple of years? I have met so many diverse people. I mean, it's opened up my knowledge of haemophilia and bleeding disorders in general because growing up I was just told that it's something only boys get and that and that's it. And now I've been opened up to the fact that you know, women with bleeding disorders, you've got Von Willebrands, the fact that someone carrying haemophilia A or B, if the levels aren't high enough, they're effectively a haemophiliac themselves. Um, the other ambassadors that I work with, we're, I like to say that we're basically just a massive family because we all have a laugh and we all talk about our experiences with haemophilia. Um, I've been fortunate enough to attend some events with the haemophilia society, such as like newly diagnosed weekends that they obviously this year has been a bit of a write-off of covid um but they host for families who you know have new children diagnosed with haemophilia some of them know what haemophilia is some of them didn't have a clue until their child was diagnosed so to go to something like that and share experiences along with other ambassadors and put parents minds at ease to show that it is possible to grow up with a relatively normal life, having haemophilia, providing you know enough about it and everyone around you understands it, it's, it's been amazing. It's life-changing. Fantastic. So in a few words then, Scott, sum up for us why people should dig deep and buy these raffle tickets to win this fantastic Jaguar XK. Uh, well, it's a fantastic car. I'm buying some raffle tickets, so it's well worth doing. Um, but... Everything the society does is a charity at the end of the day. So we do rely on donations from people. And the way that I've seen firsthand some of the events that this charity hosts has changed people's life for the better. It's worth it in of itself. But the stuff that they're trying to do, um, you know, with the, you know, blood inquiry and raising awareness purely for women with bleeding disorders is... uh, tough task and a massive thing that they're taking on at the minute so it's just things like that is all worth the money and it's all going to a good cause yes absolutely scott mclean thanks for joining us thank you for having me buy your tickets now jc.org.uk forward slash raffle they're just two pounds and that jaguar xk could be yours memories of motorsport richard remembers on the jaguar enthusiasts club podcast Well, more memories from a lifetime in motorsport from Richard West now, but rather than looking back this week, we're looking forward and to the present because, uh, Richard, you've not left motorsport at all, have you? You're still very much involved and understand that, well, you have a new signing. Tell us more. (laughs) Yeah, I do indeed, Wayne. Life seems to have gone full circle. Uh, I've entered into a a long-term contract with a young motorcycle rider by the name of Ollie Warren. Um, it's a strange one because his father, Darren, uh, who I know extremely well, Darren, uh, apart from spending eight years, I think 10 years actually, as production director at Triple Eight when they were involved in DTCC, he was also one of the young mechanics when I was at TWR Jaguar. And Darren uh, phoned me uh, about four months ago and said, listen, you know, I don't know whether you're aware, but Ollie, my son's been motorcycle racing. 
and he's going very quickly. Um, we'd like somebody to look after his commercial affairs and help manage him. So after many meetings and much debating, um, yeah, we entered into an agreement together and I'm now probably at the most difficult time commercially in any form of motorsport in the world. Um, I'm looking after all his affairs and trying to help and guide his career as we move him forward. So fascinating time for me, certainly. Well, it might sound like a bit of a departure for you going to two-wheeled motorsport instead of four, but actually you do have a lot of history. It's not some midlife crisis we're seeing for you there, Richard, after COVID, is it? <laughs> You've not bought leathers <laughs> no, or anything, have you? <laughs> no, I did actually ride for a while, and my son, because I've grown my hair during lockdown, said to me, Are you buying a trike, Dad? But no, it's nothing like that at all. And um, I actually, I think I mentioned this on one of our previous chats, I, I started out with motorcycle racing um, from the age of six right the way through until really my mid, early to mid-teens, uh, did seven consecutive TT races as a spectator, went out to Ulster and literally camped out at all the UK circuits. I was absolutely smitten with motorbike racing. And, then, you know, I was so smitten as a teenager, I was actually going to change my name by deed pole to Phil Westwood and try and be a motorcycle racer. But thankfully, that never happened. Um no, I've, I've followed the sport very, very closely. And even in the years I've been involved in four wheels and latterly, you know, with the JC and classic cars, motorcycle racing has always held a fascination for me because of the commitment required. And obviously the physical fitness and the ability to ride is one thing, but also the mental ability that is required to to be able to switch on and switch, up, switch off. E- even at the lower levels, the bikes now are quite technical. You know, the lower the formula you're in, the less setup you can do. But of course, when you get up to uh, World Superbike and MotoGP levels, the technology involved in those machines is absolutely phenomenal. So, it's I guess really in some ways it's almost a natural progression. And the fact that you know I've worked with Ollie's dad in the past, and that you know we've remained good friends throughout, and we share similar views on competition and and the need for professionalism. Truly, and I'm really happy to be doing what I'm doing because I haven't been into the paddock for a while. And when I went brands testing recently, and hopefully if the weather and the current restrictions allow, we're going to be up at um, Cadwell Park on the 2nd of October there, uh, running on a uh, running Ollie on a Kawasaki 636, current spec um, super sport bike. So yeah, really exciting times and I'm, I'm greatly enjoying it. Last episode here on the podcast, episode 24, we talked at great length about the safety of motorsport and how motorsport in on four wheels at least has made the game much safer here is a slightly different discipline in that you know when you're a superbike rider you are at far more risk of injury than other forms of motorsport does that change the way you have to manage the mentality issue is very much there the thing is with the safety now in bikes is that it's come a very very long way i mean when i started out following all those decades ago guys like bill ivy and many many young riders who died tragically um did so because they were riding circuits that weren't to the standards they are today. Also, the riders' safety equipment they wear underneath their leathers, and I think I touched on this recently, they have like an inflatable airbag, a spine protect, uh, protector, a chest protector. But obviously, when you when you watch them in action, even on 600 uh, Supersport, which is where Ollie's going to be riding next year, the bikes are still very quick. You know, you're up there 150, 165 miles an hour. And the combination of the circuit the rider safety the medical enhancements that we talked about it's all there now to protect them but clearly one of the great things one has got to do particularly with a young rider who has great ability i mean ollie last year 
took part for the first time ever really in serious road racing in the ng road racing championship and he he won the newcomers award but he also took three pole positions four wins i think five seconds four thirds i mean he was on the pace straight away on his own prepared bike but what we're looking at for him for next year is to take him to a professional team uh, that we're at the final stages of negotiation with and that in itself brings the need for a different mental approach because clearly you're then working with a team and a team owner and his mechanics and engineers who are much more structured in the way they discipline things. So whilst you have to retain the fun element, you also have to put a system of far greater time management and awareness of responsibilities into the rider's head whilst not detracting from letting him stretch his legs and use his natural talent to the best of his abilities. Where do you start? with this project when you take on uh, some new talent what's your starting point as someone who's managing him interestingly uh, and it's something you know my wife and i talked about a lot before we uh, all entered into contract on this one because you know most times in the past when i've seen you know managers pick up riders or drivers or vice versa they've been fairly quick transactions i didn't do that this time i went and spent several days you know the weather was glorious and we were able to sit outside and i spent several days with ollie talking to him about his aspirations he's actually very entrepreneurial he's got a very successful fashion business which he's built up in recent years selling a range of young people's fashion items um, he's very fast moving he's he, he cuts hair at the moment for you know premiership football stars there's a lot going on in his world and i said to him look let's get to know each other first have a chat about our respective backgrounds let me when we've done that then come back to you and tell you where I think you need to manage those businesses. So certain things that he's been doing, he'll be cutting back on next year. Certain things that he you know, hasn't done enough of yet in terms of promoting his own brand and other things, we're going to be taking an active role in that as well. So we've really looked upon the relationship first. And then from the relationship, we've started to talk more about the riding commitments and the, the ensuing commercial requirements that that riding will entail. So it's it's taken a lot of time on both parties' parts so far. Darren is, you know, racing dads sometimes can be a bit of a handful, but Darren's not like that at all. I mean, he's a brilliant engineer. He's stepping back, you know, from the commercial side of Ollie's career and allowing Ollie and I to get on with that. So it bodes well, and um, hopefully we're going to see Ollie at one of our track days. Um, he drives a Jaguar XE. He's a great Jaguar fan. Um, he's also driven my 100 and loves that as well. And I think what we're going to try and do with him is get him to come and do a demo on a track day and then get somebody like Tom Robinson to perhaps strap him in the passenger seat and show him what it's like from a different perspective on four wheels as opposed to two. Brilliant. Well, we look forward to that and great to hear that you've got yourself involved with another Jaguar fan. That's brilliant, Richard. And uh, of course, you mentioned Tom there, who will be along next with his motor racing preparation diary. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Now another instalment of Tom's racing preparation diary as he gets ready for the final round of JC Racing at Donington this weekend. So the next round of the JC Racing is this weekend up at Donington. A couple of weeks ago in the podcast we talked about a test session I had at Pembury in the XJR6 which was an absolute brilliant day and we managed to iron out all the early onset problems we've had with the car this season. So we talked about the cooling issues, we've now managed to stabilise those and proven that in pretty high ambient temperatures up at Pembury 
and uh, I spent quite a lot of time testing the car in the dry, which was obviously pretty much a first this season. So we managed to, to get a full dry setup finished on the car. So we dialed all the dampers and all the geometries into the vehicle. So it was a really, really great day. And it looks like we're not gonna need to do too much preparation for Donington. So um, before Donington is what we're gonna do is we're gonna give the car a full vision inspection. We'll give it a spanner check and we'll also change all the fluids. So we'll do engine oil this time, gearbox oil, diff oil and a full brake fluid change. It looks like the rear pads are going to need to be replaced so I'll replace those as well ready for Donington. Um, and we're also going to swap the tyres from my spare wheels. So these are the brand new ones that we scrubbed in at the test session onto the new wheels that we've got ready. Now a couple of other points we talked about previously is unfortunately we had the issue at Snetterton with a gearbox crunching from third to fourth and the car now currently has a spare gearbox in there. So now we've stripped the gearbox down completely and unfortunately we have found quite a significant amount of wear on some of the components in the gearbox. So unfortunately we haven't been able to get all the replacement parts in time for this weekend. So we've had to leave the spare gearbox in there. I'm not too concerned about that as we didn't have any issues at Pembury with the box. Um, I had a couple of issues finding gears but that turns out it was just adjustment on the gear linkage. Must be slightly different to the original box that I normally run. So that's the only downside really but everything else really is all up together and I'm hoping it's going to be a good weekend. Weather so far looks like it's going to be dry but you never know at these race circuits the weather seems to be so interchangeable so we're going to keep the car in the setup ready for the dry and plan for that but we can always change it to a wet setting on the day if we need it. Now the qualifying is on Sunday at 11 and we've got two races in the afternoon. So we've had some great races at Donington in the past, had some pretty good battles with Colin. Um, James has been pretty dominant here in the past, so I'm hoping we can get the better of him this weekend and get some good results behind us, especially as we got no points, obviously, because both of the races were cancelled at Snetterton. So it'd be great to get some points under our belt and uh, we'll keep you updated and let you know what we can do. Well, thank you, Tom. And at the moment, no spectators at any of the rounds of the JEC Racing Championship, including this weekend's round at Donington. But you don't have to miss out on the action because we have full coverage. Just follow the links from our social media pages for the Jaguar Enthusiast Club or indeed the link that was included on Friday Spotlight email from Friday the 25th of September. All the details are on there for you. Tom will be back next week. <laughs> You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk. Well, now on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, well, we're getting our hands dirty, basically, and uh, talking to someone who's restoring a classic Jaguar, an XK140, no less. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Jim Potts. Oh, thank you very much. Thanks for having me on your show. Ah, a pleasure. And uh, let's start at the very beginning then. An XK140 is not something that you generally go for if you're doing your first restoration. So you, you've done this before, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, yes. This is not my, not my first go. I've, um, I've done MGBs and uh, quite a few campers and all sorts of stuff, really. Ford Capri, the very early one from the early 60s, one of those. Um, but I, I always want a project that challenges me a bit more than the last one. And uh, this this is doing it. <laughs> mm, I can imagine it is. So how did you come across the XK140 and why this particular car? Well, I've always, I've always wanted an E-Type. That's sort of been my, my dream car, if you like. But 
you go to the car shows and there's there's lines of e-types red e-types and they're all shiny and you just just get a bit bored with them really so i thought well let's go let's go back a little bit further and uh the the xk and the xk 140 one of those in the bloodline from the xk 120 of course that arrived in 1948 a fantastic car because it was never supposed to go into production it was merely meant as a way of demonstrating the new xk engine uh, that uh, sir william Lyons was uh, really eager to uh, put out to the motor show but of course they were under some pressure to put that car into production take us back though to the start of the restoration perhaps before we go into that depth and and tell us about the car and its condition when you first bought it firstly how did you find it and where was it well i, I bought it off the internet um it was in america because of course that's where they the bulk bulk of the cars went when they were new um and i bought it just based on pictures um, which is a bit risky and it wasn't quite as it looked <laughs> right with me um the seller's description wasn't all that accurate so i was quite disappointed in that i mean things like um the indicator lenses were, were glued onto the wings there's no bulb holder they're just a, a glued on lens um, and there's lots of stuff like that and it'd been around with a rattle can and tidied up the rusty areas and that but but anyway, I wasn't I wasn't too disappointed because I wanted something to do, and it uh, it certainly fulfilled that. So I uh, paid it, came over, um, had it delivered, and uh, I think there's a video of me when I first see it on my uh, YouTube channel. Um, so what was wrong with it? Everything really. It was it was pretty rotten, um, non-runner. Although I did get it running quite easily. Um, well, you name it, it needs doing. It's just one of those basket cases, really. Has there been any indications of what sort of life it had before it came to you? And, and which bit of America had it been living in all that time? Um, Massachusetts. Well, actually, I, I got a document with a car, which was um, a title from somebody who owned it, who sold it in 1986. And it, it got quite an unusual name, so... I Googled it, and it turns out he was a dentist in Toledo. And to my surprise, this dental practice was still going. So I phoned them up, and I spoke to Cindy, the receptionist, and she said, oh, yes, he's retired now, but I'll pass your number on. And uh, he phoned me back, um, which was, and he owned it from the mid, I think the mid-70s to mid-80s. And um, he said, oh, I think I've got a picture of that somewhere. Um, about six months later, a, a photograph arrived of this car um, after he'd done it up um, in the late 70s. That was a real, real nice find to get that. Oh, this is part of the fascination, isn't it, when you start restoring a car? It's sort of discovering as you go, as you uncover yeah. bits, you know, bits of its history. It, yeah, he loved it, apparently. And he said he, he swapped it for a Corvette. And the, the Jag was far quicker than the Corvette. So I'm, I'm quite looking forward to that. Is it your intention to swap it from left to right-hand drive or to keep it the same? Oh, yeah, that, that's done. Yeah, I've, I've converted it. I, I was in two minds whether to do it, but I, I came across um, a second-hand, right-hand dashboard, um, which was not in bad nick, and that, that sort of convinced me to change it to right-hand drive. Mm-hmm. 
So you have this car now that's arrived in the UK. Yeah. It now needs a lot yeah. of work. Where on earth do you start, Jim? <laughs> well, I got the engine running just to see if it did run, and it, and it, it ran all right. Oil pressure was good, didn't overheat. That was, that was all okay. Um, but the body had to come off the chassis because there, there was holes in the chassis. Um, so I did some repairs to the body, put new sills on, um, and various other structural things just to try and keep it straight when I lifted the body off the chassis. Um, so that was off. So then shot blast the chassis, rebuild all the suspension, rebuild the engine, a bit of machining done on that, um, put all that back together and just build it up from there, really. I mean, I, I, have, no, I have no background in engineering or, or any of that sort. This is something I... I pick up uh, talking to people and, and YouTube. Uh, to take something on like that when that's not your background, it, it must be quite an undertaking. I, I appreciate you've got a lot of experience with other cars that you've done, but each one has its unique set of problems, doesn't it? Oh, it does. And, and the thing with the, the, the XK, there's so little information out there, really, which is why I put these videos on YouTube. Because a lot of jobs I've done, I've done the same job two or three times because it hasn't worked out the first time. Um, and if somebody can learn from my cock-ups, then, then so much the better. Where can we find that uh, YouTube channel, Jim? Let's give it a quick plug while we're talking about it. Okay. Uh, it's Big Jim 123100. Take the nine entertaining videos, but there might be something <laughs> useful to somebody. Well, if you're putting together an XK140 or actually any of the XK series, actually, I can imagine there will be some invaluable little shots and bits of footage within those videos that if you're doing something similar would be really useful to see. And we'll put a link to that YouTube channel in the description part of this podcast at jcpodcast.com. So uh, you can find the link there as well. Um, we talked about the engine there briefly, a legendary engine in that XK140. Uh, tell us about the process of restoring Storing that engine was it a total strip down and rebuild for you? Yeah, I stripped it down and I had the um, I had the crank checked and that was straight and it wasn't worn. I just had had it polished. Um, the bores were okay. They were they were they weren't tight, but they they weren't oval. They were still round, so that was good. So I had those um, honed. The crank and the flywheel balanced and the clutch balance that was all done and then the head new valves new guides and all the other bits that go with it new, new bearings and piston rings and chains and all that sort of stuff and this is work that you did at home or did you get any professional help with this uh no did it did it myself yeah did it myself but of course you run into problems because i i bought you think you're doing the best thing by getting a, a composite gasket Apparently, if the head hasn't been skimmed, it won't fit. But nobody tells you that. And so you spend, I bought two of these gaskets because I thought I was doing something wrong. And you go over it again and again and trying to put it all back together and it won't go on. And, and it's just too tight. And eventually, I, they said, oh, no, it won't fit unless you've had your head skimmed. <laughs> you don't know these things, do you, at the time? Tell us about some of the other challenges. If someone else is listening, perhaps with a xk that's in need of help in their garage what sort of things can you warn them about uh things like that head gasket what have been the big challenges that you've found as you've gone through this restoration nothing really nothing major it's just a case of plodding through and and, and going through it i mean 
there's always a problem with new reproduction parts. I mean, I just I just hate buying new parts. They, they don't fit properly. They don't look right. And I've had a lot of trouble. Um, but you, you just have to get used to it. And if you if you got to buy it, you got to buy it, and you got to you got to make it work. Um, but I'd I'd always get a good second hand one before a, a, a new one um, if I could. Um, well, I can't think of anything that's been a oh windscreen that was a that was a nightmare trying to get the screen in because uh, it's a split screen. And my mate had to go putting it in and bust it. So managed to get a new screen okay, and I phoned up one of the windscreen people, and um, he said I'll I'll pop round after work. He says because you know we can, we can have a look at it when it's quiet. So it came round same day. It took us two hours to get in, and we got it in. And at the end of it, he said, oh, just, just give me a drink. It's just like, how often do you find that these days? So I gave him 20 quid, and he was happy, and I was happy. And I advertised his, uh, his place on my channel. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Well, he's well deserved of that, I think. And, you know, the, the bodywork on an XK140 has been, you know, it's particularly complicated, isn't it? There's a lot of sort of double curves and, and they're big panels, aren't they? How did you find that as you went through? Oh, it, it's not easy. And, and I've, I've made it difficult for myself by doing it a dark colour. I'm doing it racing green. So, of course, that's going to show up all the ripples. But hey, they were ripply when they came out of the factory. So, you know, if I can have if I can achieve a factory finish rather than what they're trying to achieve these days, you know, these arrow straight panels, um, that'll be good enough for me. Yeah, this is it, isn't it, when you're restoring a car? I guess it's a decision that you have to make fairly early on when you start the project. Are you going for full concours or are you going for a car that's just good, like it came out of the Jaguar factory, and usable, I guess, as well? Well, yes. I mean, I'm not a professional. I mean, it'll never be as good as it. I could never achieve a concourse finish. I just couldn't do it. But if I can achieve a good finish, um, that that'll be that'll be good for me. And I won't be afraid to use it. You know, I, I can leave it in Sainsbury's car park and not be overly worried about it and stuff like that. But these cars that cost 150000 to do, then what can you do with that? Not for me. Well, Jim, you are of the uh, the old school of uh, classic car restorers, man in shed, as we like to call them, and you are That's our hero. You are our utter hero for doing this, saving another XK140, because, of course, this was the big market for Jaguar in the 1950s, America. It was where they had to sell their cars to. Far more XKs went abroad to America to be sold than were actually sold here in the UK. And it's good to hear that one's actually come back home and you've managed to save it. Yes, and this is probably the most undesirable model out of all the XKs, I reckon. Because everybody either wants the first one, the 120, or they want the last one, the 150, and everybody wants a convertible or a drop head, and of course mine's a 140 fixed head. But there, there's reason that the, the 140 fixed head has got the most leg room, and I'm six foot four, and so I, I, I would struggle in a, in a in a convertible or a, or a 120. So that, that was my, my thinking behind getting the fixed head 140. I think that's kind of a tip in itself there that you've given us, is that when you're embarking upon a project, 
And I appreciate there are some people who restore cars because they enjoy the process of restoring a car. And generally speaking, once they finish a project, they'll then sell that car on to fund the next one. But if you're not of that kind and you do want to keep the car afterwards, you really have got to pick a restoration project that is a car that you want to own and that is right for you, haven't you? Otherwise, you, I guess you're just not going to get the motivation. Oh, definitely. But I have to say, though, it, it is the doing it that I enjoy the most. It's, it's like, I, I look at it like a massive jigsaw puzzle. Um, but at the end of it, you've got a car rather than just a piece of cardboard, you know. Um, so whether I'll, I will keep it for some time, obviously. But um, there'll be something else in the future, I'm sure. You'll get itchy spanners. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. We shall see. How long have you been on the project so far? How long do you think you've got left? And how have you managed to manage the time as you've gone on? Or have you not bothered at all? You've just sort of taken it each day as it's come. Up until recently, I, I was only working part-time. Um, I was doing about 60 days a year, something like that, as, as my job. And the rest of it was in the garage. And it has been pretty much a full-time job pretty much every day i'm in the garage doing it and, and now i'm in the garage doing it every day um i've had it about two and a half years and i'm coming towards the end of it now i'm just putting the trim in uh get the last door on um and then it's it's sort of ironing out all the issues and it's, it's good to go setting up the suspension and all that sort of thing because it's Lots of shimming to do and all that uh, that sort of thing. Um, so hopefully, I'm going to say three months. Have you got a particular plan for its first ever journey? Or is that a kind of ritual <laughs> that you've got ready to go? Well, well, the, the first journey will be around the block, you know, yeah. not too far from home. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I get, you know, when you've finished a restoration, it's it gets to the point where it's all, yes, yeah, screwed together and looking like a complete car, but there is some significant time afterwards sort of de-snagging, isn't there, really? Oh, God, yes, yeah. Things not coming loose and not done up properly or fouling or leaking or whatever, yeah. I'm sure there'll be a bit of that. If someone's listening to this podcast has been inspired by what you've told us and the story that you've shared with us, what would be your advice to someone who perhaps doesn't have as much experience as you had before this XK140 about entering into a restoration? What's the top tips you can offer a newbie? I, th I think you've got to love doing it. And, and I, th I think anybody who's going to take on a, a big job will have a history of, of doing it. Um, I mean, it all starts when you're a kid, doesn't it, when you, you can't afford to pay a garage, so you have to, you have to fix it yourself. Um, but I... I but to, to have an, an old car, you, you've got to do it yourself. Else, the, well, in my mind, else the cost is prohibitive. Um, I, I've got a friend who's got an XK8, and the bills he gets for that are just horrendous. And it's just not, it's not worth spending that money on an old XK8. Um, he spent three times the value of the car on it in the last year. Um, so my, my advice is... is Think hard and enjoy doing it, else it'll become a nightmare. Well, don't forget, you can find the links to Jim's YouTube channel to actually see in the flesh this XK140 project of his that he's rebuilding. Uh, you can find the links in the description part of the podcast page at jecpodcast.com. Uh, but for now, Jim, 
Thank you so much for coming on and telling us all about the project. And hopefully we'll get to see the car finished out at a JEC event very soon. Well, yeah, hopefully if we're all allowed out, then uh, yes, I'll be, uh, I'll be coming to see you all. Brilliant. Jim Potts, thanks for joining us. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to keep in touch with us here on the JEC podcast via www.jecpodcast.com. And you can get in touch with us very easily by using the voice recorder on there to leave us a message, or you can use the contact form if you prefer to write your messages. Don't forget, you can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club online by clicking the Join Today button on the top right-hand corner of the podcast page to enjoy all the benefits, plus the fantastic, glossy, 130-page monthly magazine that's all included in your membership of the worldwide Jaguar family that is the JEC. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.